0: Well, good morning again. So good to be back in the Gospel of Luke and uh, Luke chapter 7 and study what's one of my favorite stories in the Gospel of Luke. It's stories like this that made me want to study the Gospel of Luke with y'all and um, I'm glad to be here. It's taken us some time to get to chapter 7, but we're willing, we'll finish it and uh, be in chapter eight next week, Lord willing. We're in Luke chapter seven, um, verses 36 to 50, and I, you know God's providentially orchestrating what text we study when and all of those things, but I think it's, this is such a great text for us as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper uh, to remind us of um, uh, the great forgiveness that we have in Christ, and the great love that that produces in our hearts as a result. So um, just as we walk through this text, uh, just be thinking about that as a way to, and I know you already do, but it's a way just to prepare for the Lord's Supper and the sweetness of that through this, this text right here. So the Lord has given it to us to, to meditate upon and just be grateful for the great forgiveness that we have in Christ. Follow along as I read Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, And Jesus answering said to him, "Simon, I have something to say to you." And he answered, "Say it, teacher." A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled a larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven, Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. This is the word of the living God. It's hard to quantify how significant the theme of forgiveness is, the forgiveness of sins in the Bible Uh, It is throughout both the Old and the New Testament as a uh, a massive theme that runs through the scriptures. Uh, One of my favorite places to take people when they are struggling with sins that they have committed and whether the Lord can forgive them and they can uh, enjoy the freedom of forgiveness and freedom from the guilt of their sin is Psalm 32, uh, David's confession of his sin and receiving of pardon. And listen to the words that David says as he begins Psalm 32. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The the chapter ends in verse 10 by saying, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Uh, What I love about this is David uses three of the most prominent terms for sin, and he uses three significant terms for forgiveness. I don't know if you noticed that, but he uses the term for transgression, for sin, and for iniquity. And then he uses terms like forgiveness or for, uh, forgiven, covered, and then accounts uh, not. He counts no iniquity. So you could put it like this. David says that there is full forgiveness for the totality of sin. And no matter what sin, no matter how much sin, God can forgive. And what is the result of experiencing that forgiveness? Forgiveness. Well, it can be seen both in what is felt before forgiveness and what is seen after forgiveness. Because David says before he confessed, before his sins were forgiven, it was eating him up. In fact, it affected his body. We are both material and immaterial. We are body and soul, and they affect one another. In various ways. And David, because of his sin, was so burdened that he felt the weight of it such that he felt it in his bones. He he was physically affected by the guilt of his sin. But then you just look at the flip side at the end of this, he is rejoicing, he is glad, he is relieved by having his sins dealt with and forgiven. And so forgiveness is such a sweet blessing. And then you read a passage like Psalm 130, verse 4, which is somewhat strange to our ears. And it says, but with you there is forgiveness, good enough, right? Get that? That you may be feared. And we go, wait a minute. (laughs) That kind of catches you off a little bit. If you don't Understand the fear of God correctly, or rightly, because sometimes we think of well, there are truly two aspects of the fear of God: the fear of of judgment, right? That um, that everyone ought to feel before they're in Christ and forgiven. But then there's a, a a fear of God that is a fear that is in relation to Him. It is, is in re- right relationship to Him. It is a good fear. And so, therefore, the psalmist will say, "With you, God, there is forgiveness. You forgive our sins." why, so that we fear you, so that we fear you. We might think it is the opposite. There's forgiveness so that we don't fear you, God. But the psalmist says, no, that's not right. God forgives so that we fear. So what is the fear of God that comes from being forgiven? Well, often there is in scripture a connection between fear and love when it comes to Uh, Fearing God. In fact, in Psalm 145, Psalm 145, verse 19, it says, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him. These are put in parallelism in the Psalm. Those who fear God, those who love God, they uh, go together. In Deuteronomy chapter six, Deuteronomy chapter six, we see these put in parallel also. In Deuteronomy chapter six, verse two, he's giving them these commandments and he says that you may fear Yahweh your God you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments. And then if you jump down to verse four, here's the parallel. Hear, o Israel, Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. They're, they're put in parallel. Or even the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, it says this about the Messiah There shall come forth a root, a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And listen to the next verse. And his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. So the Messiah delights in fearing Yahweh. If you go to a New Covenant passage, Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah chapter, or sorry, Jeremiah chapter 33, 31 to 33 is all about the New Covenant, but chapter 33, verse 8, when Israel receives the fullness of the New Covenant, here's what it says, verse 8, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, of praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth, who shall hear of the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. So he says, I forgive their sins, and I'm going to restore them. Why? So they fear and tremble. So these are not at odds with one another, having your sins forgiven and fearing God. And I think it starts to help us to realize that uh, as someone pointed out, and let me just give you a book recommendation if you, if you wanna go deeper on this. Michael Reeves has a fantastic book called Fear and Tremble, where he just dives into the scriptures teaching on the fear of God, really helpful. And he uh, helpfully describes the fear of God as, um, this is my paraphrase, is really the intensity of our love for God. It is a love for God that causes us to tremble. It is such a profound and such a deep love that speaks to the intensity of our love that we would fear him. And this is why the fear of God is produced by forgiveness because we look at this God and we don't just look at him as the the transcendent creator, but we see him as our redeemer and we love him for it. And that's why Jeremiah 33 says that, that, they forgive his sin, their sins are forgiven that they might fear and tremble, that there might just be this overwhelming sense of love for God because of the forgiveness of our sins. So, if you're asking the question in your own life how do I love God more? How do I grow in my intensity for, of love for God and for Christ? Well, part of the answer is understanding the forgiveness of your sins. And that is the point of Luke chapter 7. The focus of this section is really found in verse 49. Who, who then is this? It, it is referring to the identity of Jesus. What kind of man is this that can forgive, the, forgive sins? Who has the authority to do so? And you remember the contrast from last time where you had uh, Jesus telling this story, uh, we call it the parable of the brats, because Jesus is saying, hey, you had all these kids and, you know, uh, we, we played a song for you. You know, the kids are trying to decide what game to play. And so they want to play funeral. And the one kid says, I don't want to play funeral. And they say, well, we play the wedding song for you. And they're, I don't want to play wedding, you know. And, and they, don't, they don't want to do whatever. They don't want to believe no matter what. Whether it's John the Baptist ministry, whether it's Jesus' ministry, they don't want to believe. And that's what the Pharisees and religious leaders are likened unto. But then at the end of that story in verse 35, it says, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So on the other hand, you have wisdom's children. Those who respond to Jesus and John's message, which were the same. And so you have this, this contrast of the religious leaders who don't respond, and they're like the children who won't play any of the games. And then you have like people like tax collectors, the worst of the worst kinds of sinners in society, who are receiving, and they are wisdom's children. And then you have this story, which is an example of both. You have a Pharisee named Simon who is like a brat, right? He won't play the game. He's inviting Jesus over, but we're not told exactly what his motives are, but they appear throughout uh, the, the story that they are not pure motives in inviting Jesus. And then we see this woman who is, she's characterized as a sinner, and yet she comes to find forgiveness or has found forgiveness, and she expresses that gratitude for it in her profound, extravagant love. So, do you want to love Christ more, more intensely? Well, then this passage is for you. It teaches us how love might be great for Christ. We're going to look at it in three sections. We'll first consider longing, the longing of the forgiven, verses 39 to, uh, 36 to 39. Love from forgiveness, verses 40 to 47, and then the Lord of forgiveness, verses 48 to 50. Let's look first at the longing of the forgiven, the longing of the forgiven in verses 36 to 39. Jesus is invited over to dinner by a Pharisee, and um, we're told by Luke uh, here in verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Now we see Jesus going to all kinds of people. He, he often ministers to the lowest in society in this section of, of Luke, but here he goes even to the religious leaders. Because even religious hypocrites need the gospel. <laughs> uh, even regular church attenders need the gospel because some are self-deceived like this man was. And so that's where Jesus goes. He gets invited and so he goes. And we, uh, this is not the the, the kind of situation you might think it is. Uh, we think, okay, you get a dinner invitation, someone comes over to your house, you close the doors, and you eat with them, right? Uh, it would be very strange if someone just, like, opened your front door and walked in. Uh, that would be noticed immediately. That doesn't seem to be what's happening here. Now, two things are probably happening. One is the, the nature of the homes and the way that you would eat. This may have been even in a courtyard setting, but the way that they're eating and some of the things that are happening indicate that this isn't just like a normal dinner with this Pharisee and Jesus alone, but was more like a banquet. It's like he invited Jesus over for a banquet that others would have been invited to. And in this kind of situation, it would not be abnormal for people in the town to get to congregate around and kind of like from a distance watch in at the, at the meal. And those who are invited to the place of honor around the, around the table— it's not that they didn't sit at tables or, or things like that, but, but at occasions like this, they would recline at table, which was like having a, maybe a pillow uh, on, on the ground. It's like kids, if, you, if you, you know take the couch cushions off and lay them on the ground, you're like building a fort. This is kind of like that. You know you build a fort on the ground, and you have this little small table on, uh, in front of you, and everyone kind of leans like this and they put their head toward the table, and their feet extend out away from the table, so it's like a big circle that everyone's feet are on the outside, and everyone's head are on uh, towards uh, closest to the table, and you're just kind of laying, lounging on your side. And that's what we have kind of in, uh, maybe even in the picture of the the Lord's Supper as well, Um, or sorry, the Passover meal Jesus shares. And that's what's happening here. And so it's it's at least a little bit more plausible that you could have someone who kind of sneaks into this story and gets as close to Jesus as she does. So that's kind of the, the setting here that we have. You can imagine maybe a, a block party, <laughs> if you will. Or think about even one of our church fellowships, right? Maybe it's someone's house, um, and it's inside. It's it's closing. But at the same time, um, you could imagine just like someone came to visit for the first time at our church, and someone said, hey, come on over. and And, and they just kind of Came in and during the middle of it. You know, it was started late and they just walked in. It wouldn't be that strange. You would notice them maybe, but uh depends on what you were doing. That's the situation you have here. And Luke uh, he, he shows us how shocking it is, though, that this woman comes, nevertheless. Verse 37. He says, And behold, it's like, look at this. Can you believe it? A woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment. Look at this woman. You know, if there were kids there, they would be pointing, right? That's what kids do. You know, their parents, stop pointing, stop pointing. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> put your hand down. <laughs> um, notice how she's described. A, a woman of the city. Um, it's it's likely we're not told explicitly what her sin is, and uh, because Luke is just saying, "Hey, here's a here's a sinner." Like I think he wants it to be general, but it's likely she's a prostitute, uh, and she's just called a sinner. We don't know who she is, um, and just to clarify, this is not Mary Magdalene. She'll be she'll be uh, introduced in chapter the beginning of chapter eight. Um, nor is this Mary, the sister of Martha. And the reason I say that is because there are some other instances in the gospels that recount a similar sounding story where uh, a woman comes and anoints Jesus with expensive uh, perfume or ointment of some sort. But that happens uh, later in Jesus' ministry. This is happening earlier. This account in Luke is unique to Luke. The other ones are similar and likely imitating in some ways this story. Uh, but there are differences. And you say, well, there, in one of them, there's another guy named Simon, but he's Simon the leper, and we have here Simon the Pharisee, which. If you you know anything about, like, how things work, like, you would just not have a Pharisee. who was a leper inviting all these people into it. So they're different people. It's like, you know, a very common name. Simon is a very common name. It's like, in our church, Mike, right? It's like, uh, that's what you have. So you'd be like, oh, no, this is two different stories. So that's what you have happening here. This is a unique story. We don't know much about her. What's amazing about this story is we don't know her name. We don't know her sin specifically. And she never talks in the narrative. And yet, actions speak louder than words in this story. But why is she here? Well, she's just known as a sinner, and that kind of defines her identity, her sin. And look at the middle of verse 37. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, when she got word that Jesus was in this home, she dropped whatever she was doing and she made a beeline to this house. She had to see Jesus. And it wasn't like people had find my iPhone on Jesus, you know. They didn't have a tracking device. They couldn't say, oh, he's there, you know. uh, You had to go by word of mouth. And so, yes, he's doing lots of miracles and so a lot of people would flock, but you could still miss it, hypothetically, and he moves on. And so here's this woman who likely has heard about Jesus and maybe even heard, Jesus uh, either recounted to her that Jesus has said to other people, your sins are forgiven, like in Luke 5. And she's thinking is it really possible that my sins could be forgiven by God, and this man can do it? And, and so she hears, and she has to go. She has to go. Actually, I think it's maybe possible and likely that she's already been forgiven, but she's still never met Jesus, but she's heard the message, and she, she wants to trust in this man. She wants to, to be near this man. She wants to meet him, express her love to him because of what she's heard and what she's embraced. I think that'll bear out as we work through the passage. She has a desperate desire to get to Jesus that overcomes any embarrassment this may have brought into her life. And this would have been very embarrassing for her and everyone else, mind you. And so this is the longing of the forgiven. Her actions would have caused people to whisper and be scandalized. Now, she may have had a plan uh, beforehand, but when she gets near to Jesus, it's like the dam of her emotions breaks, and she can't contain herself. And it doesn't say that, but I just think whatever she had planned to do it kind of went out the door and she's just there and, and she's overcome in the presence of Jesus and she starts weeping and the word for weeping is like a, it's used in other contexts for raining. So this isn't just like a few tears on her face. This is intense weeping. She's raining tears on Jesus' feet and this is how close she's gotten to him. So remember, Jesus and Simon are like talking to each other. Their, their heads are towards the table and their, his feet are, are coming out and so she's able to kind of sneak in, move her way through and get down to his feet, and she starts just weeping tears upon his feet, and we find out that the normal practice would have been for some servant in the home uh, to wash the feet of those who came in, especially for a meal like this, uh, but that is not what has happened. This this man, Simon, did not offer that normal uh, A practice for Jesus, and so his feet are dirty, and so her tears are hitting his feet, and they are mixing with the dirt on his feet. And Luke, the way he describes this is just like point by point. She begins weeping at his feet, and then uh, as she begins to wet his feet with her tears, she then wipes them with the hair of her head. Now, um, this this alone, uh, many point out, would have been very um, scandalous, maybe in, in its own right, uh, for a woman to let down her hair like this in public. Um, and yet, she is just, she's not thinking about those things. She's just thinking more practically. And, and you know, I just, I just can't help but think. This is my, how my mind works. Uh, sometimes, like, I don't know if you've ever been eating somewhere, and you, you're watching, uh, you know, someone else eat a woman, and she has long hair, and um, you, you see her, like, turning and you see her hair about to like go into the food, right? And it's just, you just want to say something. You're like, hey, you know, it's like honey. And you're like, no, (laughs) and it's like about to drift into it. And, uh, and, but yet here, here she's, she's letting her glory down and she is using her hair like a mop on Jesus's feet to wash his feet. I mean, this is, this is incredible devotion. And yet, Awkward, right? For, for those around. And then she begins kissing his feet, and it's like a repeated kiss. And it's, it's, a, it's a word that is, Luke likes to use in um, intense situations. We'll put it that way. Because he uses it in Luke 15 to refer to the prodigal son and his father, kissing him as he returns to his home. And it's used of the elders as they part with Paul in Acts 20 remember, Luke writes Luke and Acts, and so he uses this word to refer to these incredibly emotional times. Uh, totally appropriate, but, but yet uh, incredibly emotional. And, and so she's kissing his feet, and then she has this, this ointment. You know, Luke doesn't tell us the cost of it. If we were to assume that it's of a similar cost to the ointment and perfume that's um, used to anoint Jesus later in his ministry, if they're any similar, that ointment is calculated at close to a year's worth of wages. It's so like, just whatever you make in a year, you know, <laughs> uh, and you just say, like, I'm gonna buy my wife this perfume that's so, ex-. she's not gonna like it, I can tell you. <laughs> you know, if you spent that much money, <laughs> a year's worth, it's like, what? Uh, so, so th- this is an incredible sacrifice on her part, and uh, you know, you just have to love the actions of new believers sometimes because no one told her, like, this is what you do now that you're a Christian, you're, that you're forgiven. You know, you, she doesn't know. She's just doing what just seems right to her. She needs to get to Jesus. And she does. And you see this incredible expression of her devotion, of her love, having been forgiven. She has much sin. And this is her longing, to get near to Jesus, to express her love to him, having been forgiven. But look at verse 39 in contrast. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, notice that, he said to himself, right? So he's thinking this. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner, a sinner. And so he's thinking this. And and, and notice the comment about being a prophet because just prior to this, we had seen how Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets, right? He does the miracle in Nain, uh, which is in the north and, and uh, of Mount Moray. And in the south is Shunem, which where uh, Elisha does this uh, miracle, a very similar manner. And, and Jesus uh, does the same thing to show his, his greatness. And then also, John the Baptist, who comes and um, speaks of Jesus and prepares the way for him. And here now, he says, this, this man can be a prophet. He, and yet Jesus is gonna reveal that He is truly a prophet as he reads Simon's mind uh, in a minute here. Now, notice how he views the woman, the same way that Luke described her in verse 37 as a sinner. This kind of brackets this first section. Here is this woman, a sinner. And she longs for forgiveness. And she longs to be near to Jesus now that she has tasted this forgiveness. Who longs for forgiveness? Well, sinners do. Sinners who have come to the end of their sin and who see the worth of Jesus Christ. She knows her sinfulness. It was her identity. And she's humble. She's not coming thinking she deserves anything. She comes and weeps. She sacrifices to the Lord. She wants to be near the Lord. She is showing by her actions that Jesus is worth more to her than anything she possesses. She's showing by her actions the value Jesus has in her eyes. I am a great sinner, but Jesus is worth all. You think of, you know, here's the sinful woman who recognizes this. The Pharisee does not recognize this, but let me tell you about another Pharisee who did come to recognize the worth of Jesus in Philippians 3. So so you have this woman who's a sinful woman. She knows it. He's a self-righteous man. Here's another self-righteous man. Verse 2 of Philippians 3. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. all of his human standing, all of his human achievements, all of his self-righteousness. And he came to see that and he came to see the worth and the value of Christ. He considered everything else as worthless, lost, trash in comparison to knowing Christ. And here this woman, she sees the value of Christ as well and she shows it in her own way. So have you known this kind of longing before? Like the sinful woman, like the self-righteous man. A longing for Christ now that your sins have been forgiven. Michael Reeves writes this. He says, what do you fear more, being sinful or being uncomfortable? Which do you fear more, being a sinner or being exposed as a sinner before others? Which do you fear more, God or other people? And here's this woman who could care less at this point about what other people think about her. Uh, Her reputation is completely shot, and yet she just wants to get near Jesus. That's what she wants. She's not concerned any longer about the people's opinion of her or Simon's. She simply wants to be near to Jesus. This is the longing of the forgiven. Now, Jesus begins to prove this man wrong about not being a prophet in verse 40 and following. And here we see love from forgiveness. Love from forgiveness. Those who are forgiven, want, they long to be near to Jesus. And, and then here's what they do. They show love to him having been forgiven. Verses 40 to 47. Look at verses 30, um, or sorry, verse 40 and 41. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. This man does not think Jesus is a prophet, yet this man has his thoughts revealed by Jesus. And Jesus knows about this woman. He knows that she is a great sinner. Verse 39, it said that the Pharisee said to himself, now Jesus answers him without even knowing the concern. <laughs> we might say that Simon did not say, <laughs> but Jesus answered him nevertheless. If you ever played Simon Says, you know, but Simon didn't say, and yet Jesus answers nevertheless. He has uh, omniscience here to, to know exactly what this man is thinking. He reads his mail without opening it. And that's what the Word of God does, right? As we study the Word of God, there are times when the Word of God diagnoses us perfectly. And, you know, and the preacher's just preaching along. He's not thinking about your situation, and I'm not thinking about your situation, you know, and, and then you think, like, how does he know that? How did he know that about me? He, he just, he's just, he's getting on me. You know, it's like, no, I'm not. I'm just preaching the word and the word is doing its work in your life. And this is what Hebrews tells us about the word of God. Hebrews 4 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so this man is exposed before Jesus. All are exposed before the word of God. And so he tells this parable. And he introduces it in verse 41. And we read that. And and really you have two debtors and a money lender and two debts. Um, A denarii, is like a day's wage. It's like one day's wage. And so 500 denarii are close to two years' wages. Two years' wages. 50 denarii is is about two months' wages. Um, And then you look at verse 42. So he sets it up, and then he says, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, notice that Jesus puts both of these uh, these, these borrowers in the same condition. He says they could not pay. Both are unable to pay the debt back. And this is the state of every sinner. Unable. Can't pay the debt back. And we have two problems, really. We have the problem of uh, remission and of righteousness. Like, we cannot pay back the debt, or make up for the debt we've incurred by our sin. That's forgiveness, right? That's remission of our sins, wiping it away. But we also are unable to obey the law of God in a way that satisfies God's demands for righteousness. So we lack forgiveness, and we lack the ability to to get forgiveness ourselves, and we lack the ability to get righteousness ourselves. And that's where the gospel comes in to meet both of those needs for the sinner. But here is how he sets it up both cannot pay. It doesn't matter if you are a less sinner than another person because you're still unable to pay back the debt to God. So, okay, if we want to say, uh, which seems to be the, the point of this parable, that, that some have have sinned more right uh, than others or more grievously, it doesn't matter when it comes to your standing before God. You cannot pay it back. But notice how he continues and says, (laughs) he canceled the debt of both. And the idea of this word is, it's like, one translation says, he graciously forgave them both. And that's a good, good sense of it. And, And it comes up in a number of other places in the New Testament, for God's gracious forgiveness of sinners. And this is shocking. I mean, Try calling your mortgage company up this week and just saying, hey, I just heard this Bible story this week, and I just, I don't know, I just thought I would ask you, I don't know if you've heard of it before, Luke 7, but would you guys be willing to obey the Bible and remit my debt, right? Follow the example and remit my debt for this? And that's just insane. And and then they're like, what? What are you talking about? No. Uh, And he's, okay, well, what about my car loan? (laughs) You know, that's a little bit less, right? No, we're not doing that either. This is just so shocking, this story. I mean, it's very understandable, but it's so odd because it would never happen. One in a thousand, this wouldn't happen. And yet, this is the story of salvation. <laughs> I like how Dale Ralph Davis puts it as he summarizes First, He says, The gospel brings together hopeless condition and impossible gift. Hopeless condition and impossible gift. And that's what he sets up for here. Finally, he asks this question in light of the parable. Now, which of them will love him more? Which will love him more? And Simon answers in verse 43, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. It's like, is this a trick question? (laughs) And Jesus says to him, you have judged rightly. And then Jesus begins to apply the parable to Simon and the woman. He looks now at the woman And turns away from Simon. I don't know if you noticed that. Look at verse 44. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, right? That's kind of odd. So Simon's here, woman's here. He's got his back to Simon. And he says, (laughs) Simon! But he's looking at the woman. It's like he's he's turning his back on this man. He's turned his back on him. And, And notice what he says. And notice the contrast here between. What he does or doesn't do and what she does, he does not wash his feet, normal practice. He does not greet him with a kiss, also, you know, greet one another with a kiss. That's a normal practice. He did not anoint his head with oil, an honored guest. He, what I'd say, is an example of indifference to Jesus. He's just indifferent to Christ. And put that against this woman's response, she Washes his feet with her tears. She kisses his feet. She anoints him with this ointment. Here's an expression of her love, an expression of extravagant love in in contrast to indifference. And then we, we see the punchline, verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he was forgiven little, loves little Now, let's first deal with this little interpretive issue here. The word for can confuse some people. For, she loved much. Uh, The idea is not that she's forgiven because she loved, right? Don't read it that way. Uh, Some want to say, therefore I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven. Why are they forgiven, Jesus? Well, because she loved much. So she did this great act of devotion, so I forgave her. That goes completely against the entirety of this story and the parable he just told. That's not the idea. Rather, her love is an expression of her having been forgiven. And Gerald Bach writes this, the forgiveness is not a result of the acts. Rather, the acts testify to love's presence in gratitude for the previous granting of forgiveness. Now the writer says this, Jesus' little parable makes the order clear. Forgiveness comes first, produces the response of love, So in verse 47, Jesus is saying that her love is the evidence of forgiveness already received. And of course, our token J.C. Rao quote of the week, (laughs) her love was the effect of her forgiveness, not the cause. The consequence of her forgiveness, not the condition. The result of her forgiveness, not the reason. The fruit of her forgiveness, not the root. Clear enough? (laughs) Also, we could add to this that when he says "are forgiven," your sins are forgiven, or her sins are forgiven. It's the tense that it's in in Greek indicates that this is the state in which she is. It is. It's actually indicating uh, that this likely took place in the past and it's continuing to have results into the present. Right, a past action that continues to have effect. And so she, it's implying that she had been forgiven and she's continuing to be in the state of forgiveness. That's what he says in the choice of even the, the tense uh, of verb. And the parable, as we said, it speaks to one who had a great debt, that debt was forgiven, and the result was love. Not, they loved the debtor so much and they, the debtor forgave, the, Or I mean, the, 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 the lender. No, that's not the parable. And so this matches with the parable. And here then is the great principle laid down for you and me. Jesus says, he who is forgiven little loves little. He, and the flip side would be true as well. She who is forgiven much loves much. And here's the marker of true saving faith or one major marker. Love for Christ. Love for Christ. Do you love Christ? Not, not do you love him as much as you want to love him? <laughs> uh, of course, all of us say, no, I don't. But do you have any love for Christ? Is there love for Christ? 1 Corinthians 16, Says, says this, if anyone does not love the Lord, he's to be accursed. He's to be accursed. He's not saying you need to love the Lord to earn your salvation. He's saying, hey, if you don't have love for the Lord, this is your condition. This is your state. It indicates you're not saved. How could you have your sins forgiven, wiped out, and yet remain indifferent to Jesus? Right? It's, it's just impossible. Of course, there are times where we may grow cold in our love for the Lord, and we might feel a sense of indifference, and yet there's still some flame of love there for him. What do you do in such times? And I think this passage is so instructive for us. I think it encouraged us to reflect upon the great debt that we had before God and the great love that Christ has shown in the cross, in the gospel, we, we need to contemplate this incredible debt that we had that we could not pay and then to remember the grace of the Lord Jesus and his willingness to forgive. And this begins to fan the flame again. We begin to move towards God, trembling in this right kind of fear when we have the cross in our minds. Because what is it that changes a a dread fear of God in the sense of fear of judgment to a loving fear of God because we're his children and it is the cross. The cross is what transforms that. Forgiveness is what changes that dynamic so that we don't fear God in judgment, but he's our father. We, we fear him, we love him with this intensity of love because despite all of our sin and transgression and iniquity, he's given us full forgiveness for the totality of our sins. Do you love Christ? How is your love for Christ manifesting itself? Here, this woman just is elaborate in her love for Christ. And it just, it's a convicting passage for us as we think about, where's my love for Christ? How does it show up? Do I talk a lot about love for Christ, but it doesn't manifest in my life? Do I say one thing and I unsay it with my life? Because here, this woman, she doesn't say a word. But it's very clear where her priorities lie. It's very clear where she wants to be with the Lord Jesus. She wants to know him. She wants to express her love to him. And and I think it is only when we understand truly what has happened in the exchange of salvation and we understand more and more the person of Christ that our, our lives become more and more consumed with him. And she was drawn to him because of who he is. And so we need to as well remember who Christ is for us. And this is exactly what Luke does for us in the last three verses. He reminds us of who this one is, who even forgives sins, so that we will savor him, so that we will grow in our love for him. And here we see the Lord of forgiveness, the Lord of forgiveness, verses 48 to 50. I want you to just savor this incredibly assuring statement Jesus declares to her in verse 48. Verse 48. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. I mean, we don't know this woman, but you know your own heart. You can think of all those sins you've committed, all those you don't even remember you've committed, you've forgotten about. And here's Jesus standing before you And he says, your sins are forgiven. What an assurance for this woman. And that's exactly Jesus' intent. He wants to assure her. Here is this Pharisee who Jesus knows is just uh, rejecting her. All those around likely the same in their thoughts. And here's Jesus. doesn't matter what any of those people think. He's accepted her this confirms her faith in a powerful way. And remember who Luke is writing to, Theophilus, and he's trying to give him confidence in the things that he's heard. And one of the things, no doubt, he would want to have confidence in is, are my sins forgiven? Can Jesus forgive my sins? And he's saying, Theophilus, look look at this man. Who can do this? No one. No one but him. Your sins are forgiven. And, and once again, same thing. He, he's saying, it's like he's, it's like he's saying to her, your sins have been forgiven and they continue to remain forgiven. He recognizes a prior faith in her life and he's, igno- he, he, he's confirming that in her life. He, this is not saying this is the moment she's forgiven, but he's recognizing she has trusted in him and he's giving her assurance that she in fact has trusted and therefore is forgiven. It's likely that she, just prior to this, at some point, coming to this dinner party, had been forgiven. This is the same statement God says to you if you've come to Christ. I mean, I know you might be thinking, like, I just wish he could appear to me, though, and say it, you know, but the word of God is not in contradiction to the word of God, to the word of God, the Lord Jesus. And the word of God tells us, if you confess to the mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. There's forgiveness to be found. And there's confidence that can be had in that forgiveness, assurance to be had by looking to Christ. Notice the reaction of the statement, verse 49. And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And this is a similar statement that was said back in chapter 5 when Jesus told the man who came down from the roof. I mean, Jesus loves, I mean, oh, it would just be so great to have walked around. I mean, unforgettable stories. The, the man coming down out of the ceiling. I got a story for you. And Jesus says to that man, your sins are forgiven. Totally unexpected. And then here's this woman, I mean, awkward. It's this situation. And same thing, your sins are forgiven. I mean, the stories, That I mean, this, it must have been so fun as Luke and the other writers to, to recount these stories and tell them or hear about them, and, and Luke, in Luke's case, and, and write them down. Just incredible Now, what's amazing about this as they ask about the identity of Jesus, they get it right. Who is this that even forgives sins? What Jesus is not saying is God will forgive your sins. He just tells her, your sins are forgiven. He's not saying like a prophet, like, or like a pastor, like I might, I can't tell you your sins are forgiven. I don't, you know, but I can say, based on your profession of faith in Christ. You're forgiven, right? Because you have obeyed uh, the call to repent and believe in the gospel, but I don't know any hearts and I don't have the authority to forgive sins. But Jesus does. He's the Lord of forgiveness. He's the one who can actually say your sin and they recognize this. Wh- who is this man? What is his identity that he can forgive? Only God has the right to judge people and to forgive people. Yes, that's true. That's exactly who you're dealing with. Luke wants all of us who read this to ask the same question, who is this? It forces us to deal with the deity of Christ, who is the final judge and the only one who has authority to forgive your sins. He also wants us, as a follower of Christ, to remember who this is. He wants you to savor the savior He is the one who says to you, Your sins are forgiven, and He wants us to kindle love in your heart for Him. And verse 50 surely would do that for her and hopefully for us as well. Look there. He said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Powerful affirmation to her. Let's look at these, these two briefly as we conclude. Your faith has saved you and go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Faith saves. Faith saves. Now, to be technical, uh, faith, uh, faith saves because of what it looks to or who it looks to, right? Faith is the instrument by which we receive Christ for who he is. So faith, like in and of itself, devoid of an object, does not save but faith in the object of Christ saves. Faith is the instrument. Jesus person and work are the ground of our salvation. Faith is the instrument that looks to Christ. So we've said before faith or trust is the ring that holds the diamond which is Christ. Or I just found this helpful illustration that uh, John Piper uh, wrote in a book of his I was, I was just looking at, and he says this, faith saves the way swallowing a pill heals. But the pill, not the swallowing, contains the disease-killing agent, the health-giving power. Faith receives Christ, Christ saves, and in that sense, faith saves. So faith is the appropriation of Christ. It is the receiving of him, and he is the one who saves. It looks to him. And so therefore, to to, to have saving faith, you have to recognize that Jesus is the Savior. He is Lord, that he is the one who can forgive your sins and therefore you rely upon him. You trust in him to do that. And then finally, this last statement, he says to her, go in peace. If you have looked to Christ in faith, then you are saved and the result is peace. Peace with God. Romans 5, 1 tells us, therefore, since we have been justified By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, for God's glory alone. That's what we see here. It's been said there's only two kinds of people, great sinners who know it and great sinners who don't. And this woman sees it. Listen to J.C. Ryle as he applies this text to our hearts. He says this, quote, Forever let the mighty principle laid down by our Lord in this passage abide in our memories and sink down into our hearts. It is one of the greater cornerstones of the whole gospel. It is one of the master keys to unlock the secrets of the kingdom of God. The only way to make men holy is to teach and preach free and full forgiveness through Jesus Christ. The secret of being holy ourselves is to know and feel that Christ has pardoned our sins. Peace with God is the only root that will bear the fruit of holiness. Forgiveness must go before sanctification. We shall do nothing till we are reconciled to God. This is the first step in religion. We must work from life not for life our best works before we are justified are little better than splendid sins we must live by faith in the son of god and then and not till then we shall walk in his ways the heart which has experienced the pardoning love of christ is the heart which loves christ and strives to glorify him amen this is the lord of forgiveness who forgives our sins He makes us long for him and and makes us love him more and more as we recognize I'm a great sinner, but oh, the Lord is such a great and willing savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story that encourages our hearts so greatly that though we have great sin, you are a great savior. You're willing and able and able to forgive us of our sins, and we rejoice in that. And as we transition to seamlessly into this time of the Lord's Supper, we relish this time to reflect upon and rejoice in the great forgiveness you have shown. And so, Lord, as our hearts have been prepared, may this be a sweet time and encouragement for our souls and as we partake of the bread and the cup. In Jesus' name, amen.